Welcome. Welcome back to the Fastest Gnome Podcast. Every week, talking with some of the most fun and interesting, and in this case, fast people. That's right. We kind of bounce around a little bit from adventurers to the really fast runners. We got both on our, as our guests today, and I don't think you know who I'm talking about yet. So I'm going to do a quick little introduction, then you're going to get to know this person better, as am I. I'm speaking with a gentleman <clears throat> who is two-time uh, uh, Olympic trials qualifier in the marathon with a 215 marathon PR, three times at the world championships in the 50K. This guy ran a 103 half, and, and he recently set the FKT on Aconcagua in South America, which is the tallest mountain in the world outside of the Himalaya. That's a real resume. I am speaking <laughs> with Tyler Andrews. Welcome, Tyler. Thanks, Buzz. Thanks for having me. Well, that was quite a resume. You covered the bases here. <laughs> yeah, I, I think uh, some of some of your listeners might uh, I might be a little bit of a, a different background in that I I definitely spent most of my career so far, the probably first decade or so, on the roads doing kind of now what I see as like flat, boring stuff, but a little bit quicker. And now I've kind of found a new love for trails for really big mountains and uh i've been having a lot of fun setting some fkts in the last few years wow you certainly have and i'm gonna have to keep mentioning this because it is stunning and i'll first i'll start off by saying that you are an expert on this topic because you are indeed our regional editor for south america so any True. fkts that come in for south america you are the one who reviews them and wow uh that's really terrific because it's, you know, requires a little bit of sorting out. As we're going to get into in a minute, you've sorted out some of the Aconcagua FKTs. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to invite the listeners to go to the website, and Tyler Andrews is the name, and the top menu bar under athletes, type in Tyler Andrews, and one sees 27 FKTs. And these aren't for like little loops. This isn't for like the Mesa Trail. Uh, these are, this is like a bucket list, Tyler. I mean, I know these routes. This is Salcante. This is the alternate to the Inca Trail in Peru, right? Mm -hmm. This is Ojos del Salado, which no one's ever heard of. It's, it's like the second highest mountain <laughs> in the yep. Andes. No one's ever even yep. heard of it. Cotopaxi, the giant volcano of mm -hmm. Ecuador. I'm sorry, Tyler. I should let you do the talking here. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's a funny list because I think like I'm a, I'm an American. I'm from the U.S., but I think like probably 26 of those 27 are in South America or in the Andes. I think I have like one uh, the Flags, Flagstaff Loop Trail out in, in Arizona, um, and I think pretty much all the rest are are down in South America, and that's it's where I've spent a lot of time. I I ended up down there and way back in 2008 as a high school exchange student and then kind of just fell in love with the region and I've been going back ever since and kind of now split my time between South America and, and the U.S. And so that's that's really where I've kind of developed my love for trails and mountains. And yeah, that's where I've done most of my, my cool little projects that I've, I've pursued over the last few years. Very cool. So again, click on Tyler Andrews on their website so you get to see this Bucket list. If you want to go to South America, just go do what Tyler Andrews has already done. <laughs> Possibly not as fast, but this is uh, this is an incredible list here. So, uh, hablo español. Ah, claro, bueno. We could do the whole podcast in Spanish if you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but seriously, I Buzz and I were talking about this off air right before. It's like I think South America is a, is a, a real hidden gem of, of trail running, of, of FKT kind of routes, of mountaineering. Um, it's so close to the United States. So, you know, I, I actually get a lot of people who reach out to me because I think if you kind of Google like running in South America, you often end up finding me somewhere <laughs> along the line and people who are like, Hey, you seem to be like the guy who runs in South America a lot. That's from the U S and so, yeah, feel free to shoot me a message on email or DM or whatever. Uh, if you're ever interested in, in coming to South America, I always love to talk about it and recommend routes and stuff. Good call. Indeed, going back to the written show notes, your website is www.chaski.run, and you're a coach. And so on the written yeah. show notes, under your bio is your Strava, your Instagram, your Twitter, your Facebook, and your website for your coach. Thank you. 
Yeah, yeah. I started the uh, I started Chosky about two and a half years ago, and with uh, actually a group of other athletes, a bunch of other people who are pretty big in the FKT space as well. Devin Yanko, Mike Wardian, Corey Boltering, um, a bunch of us kind of came together and uh, and started this group to. You know, a lot of us were already coaching individually, so we uh, we kind of wanted to pool our resources, work together, approach it more as a collective versus individuals. So that's that's been really nice. I I've, I've been running professionally for uh, gosh almost ten years now, um, but it's nice to have something else to do, uh, a way to kind of give back to the community, to keep me involved, uh, meeting new people, all that kind of stuff. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. So Chosky is a collective. You just mentioned Devin Yanko is one of the coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just had Thanksgiving dinner with uh, Devin. I didn't huh. even know that. See, these really? podcasts are great. I'm, I'm, I'm learning constantly. <laughs> yep, totally. Okay, well, I'm I'm just trying to figure out where we can dive in here, Tyler, because I'm yeah. just, I'm you know normally I am I'm somewhat of a smooth guy, but here I am kind of <laughs> just my eyes are all agog. I'm looking at this bucket <laughs> list of, and of course I've been to South America numerous times. Peter Backlund and I have climbed Aconcagua, the Big A as I tend to call it, mm-hmm. and it's just and we've done a lot of stuff around Cusco. And wow, this is I'm my uh, my jaw just dropped open here. I'm going, of course it's right now it's middle of winter here. It's summer yeah. down there, so I'm yep. doubly agog. But let's try to figure <laughs> out how, where to get into this, and let's start with yeah the big A, definitely. And this is as I mentioned the tallest mountain in the world outside of the Himals. That's yep. Big, it's uh, yep. not quite seven thousand, but it's almost seven thousand, and uh, it's one of the seven summits, and so it gets a lot of attention, doesn't it? Uh, if you go to Plaza de Mulas, the base camp, it's like EBC, it's like Everest Base Camp. Yeah, actually, you've been to Everest Base Camp, so you could verify that. I think <laughs> these are the only two places in the world who do this, right? It's yeah. a seasonal giant. I mean, to say tents doesn't really quite describe yeah. it accurately. The, it's not like there's these little, you know, pup tents. These are like full-on dining establishments. You can go there and yeah, eat a watermelon like these huge and stuff. Yeah. And so it's a completely different scene. Yep. Yeah, it's funny because I was so I was on um so to back up, the the goal was was always to go to Aconcagua and set FKT there um in January and I spent about a month before that on the Chilean side. So Aconcaguas are in Argentina. And when you say 7,000 for your listeners who might be Americans, that's 7,000 meters. It's 69, 62 meters, which is almost 23,000 feet. Um, so it's a big boy. And, uh, and yeah, so I was, I, I was doing my training, essentially my last kind of stint of training on the Chilean side. So just across the border um, near Ojos del Salado, which is the second tallest mountain. And it's just the contrast between those two is incredible. You have Aconcagua, which is one of the seven summits. And so it gets all this recognition, every kind of bucket list seven summit climber wants to go. There's literally hundreds of people at base camp. Like it is a small city, well, small town, whatever it's, there are semi-permanent structures. There's a helicopter pad. There's a doctor's office. There's um, you know, like these, these huge, huge domes, like, you know, these domes are like 30 feet tall, some of them that can house, you know, 20 people to eat a meal or something like that. Um, it is like, I've never, ever been to a, a campsite like it. Like I, I have kind of glanced at Everest base camp from afar. I've never actually like spent any time there, but, um, you know, I've never seen anything like this camp and to come there from having been on the second tallest mountain, which is, which is by the way, only like a hundred feet shorter, just across the border, <laughs> there was no one there literally there was there, i went there and i i almost went to the summit and uh like three weeks earlier and i was literally the only person on the mountain there were no snow prints even on the top of the mountain like it was empty and just that contrast is incredible to see like oh yeah it's a seven summit so therefore it gets all this love and poor ojos across the way is just you know left for dead basically but for me, I love it. Like I, part of the thing, part of what I love about being in the mountains is that solitude, that connection with the nature, that isolation that you get when you're in a remote place. And honestly, like for me, Aconcagua, that was like my least favorite part was how, just how crowded it was, how built up the camps were. 
um, how tight all the regulations were, things like that. You know, I love OHOS because I can, you know, from our kind of base camp uh, up in the Atacama, like I can drive drive to the base of that mountain in an hour and hike it by myself with no one there and no one giving me any kind of hard time and hike back down and I'm back in my own bed that evening. So like, that's something that's really, really special. Whereas Aconcagua, it's like, you know, we had to reserve permits and, you know, six months earlier and, and it's super restricted. And there's like, you have to like pass a doctor's physical and like all this stuff in order just, just to get on the mountain. Um, so it's, it's a completely different experience um, being at those two, but, you know, I think it's, it's great for, for obviously for the local economy. And, you know, I love like the community of runners and climbers. And so seeing so many people out there pushing themselves and trying to accomplish something really big is, you know, I think that's motivating for everyone. Right. Well, thanks for the description because I think a lot of people think about doing the big A. Indeed, I have a friend who left, uh, five days ago to go down and do it. It's part of a group trip, of course. Yep. And so let's just touch on that for a brief second. Just We're going to get into the FKT action, but I think to set the stage is helpful because a lot of listeners probably have thought about going down for this. Sure. It's a worthy objective. I mean, totally. it's, it's um, you, you can do it by yourself or with a partner, with a group of friends. You can do it as an independent. And yep. And you get really high. Like you said, you get almost to 7,000 meters, which means yep. almost to 24,000 feet. Yep. Um, but what do you think? I When I was down there and I'd been there twice, I guessed it was 90, over 90, incalculably over 99% group trips where you sign on mm-hmm. with a group and they have these giant, I mean, giant mule trains yeah. schlepping phenomenal <laughs> mountains of gear up to base camp. And yeah. you kind of hike by yourself with a day pack, sometimes stopping halfway at Confluencia, I think. Yeah. But but then finally getting up to base camp, which is kind of luxe, to be perfectly honest. I oh, mean, totally. There's, I mean, there's wine with dinner. Oh, yeah. You're at, you're at 10,000 <laughs> feet. No, no, oh, no you're at four, you're at 14 something up there. Yeah. Yeah. You're yep. at 14. It's like wine for dinner. It's, uh, it's a different, <laughs> we didn't have any wine on our trip. <laughs> <laughs> so you did then go independent as they say, but yeah. so who, who is we in your case? Yeah. So, so we contracted a company in Argentina basically just to do our permits um, that's pretty much the bare minimum that you can do. And then when you do that, you get really basic base camp services. So we got like our drinking water provided, which is actually super convenient. Um, so you didn't have to like boil water or anything like that. Um, and we essentially got a campsite, but so that was pretty much what, what we, what we got in terms of, you know, luxuries provided to us. And then, um, I was there with my, my friend and, and climbing partner, Scott Penfield. He, he came to Ojos with me last year in 2021 when we went there to set the FKT um, and so it was great to have just another person for company, for climbing, for training, for safety on the mountain, uh, for support during FKT day, all those kind of things. Um, and yeah, we kind of had like, you know, we were like joking about it. It's like, we had the, probably like the, the cheapest and most basic way that you could possibly do it. Like we, we bought all our own food in Mendoza. Um, we slept it all up there. Like we had, you know, just a basic tent that we stayed in and cooked all our meals in and, you know, we're eating like ramen and canned tuna fish and saltines, like peanut butter. Like that was like pretty much our diet for like two weeks up there. And um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, very, very basic living, which to me, I, I really enjoy that. I think it's really uh, it's, it's a nice break from kind of living in a city and modern fast paced society to just be like, all right, like our day is very simple. We get up, we have coffee, we go, climbing we come back we eat we rest we go to bed like that was pretty much it and (laughs) i think the other really big difference between what we were doing and what most of the commercial climbing groups do is most groups they get up to plaza de mulas which is the base camp at fourteen thousand feet and again you still have almost nine thousand feet of mountain above you at that point and most of them are going to launch their summit bid from a much higher camp they're going to go up uh like to 6,000 meters, 20,000 feet. Yeah. And, and do their summit bid from there. Uh, we never did that. We never slept higher than positive Mulas, but we went high like almost every single day. 
Um, and now we had the benefit and the privilege of being like, all right, we're pretty fit. We're already pretty well acclimated. So we knew we could make a summit bid from Mulas and obviously my long summit bid all the way from the highway trailhead at 8,000 feet and 15 miles back down the valley. Um, but most people it's like, yeah, that last thousand meters is going to take them thousand vertical meters. I should say from six to 7,000 meters, like that's going to take them 10 hours maybe. So they need to start that high just in order to literally get to the summit and back in one day. Right. Um, well, so, let, let's pause here and start this out yeah. before I, 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 again, I'm, I'm having trouble here because I'm so excited to be talking about this. It's so interesting, <laughs> brings back a lot of memories, but just to sort it out for other people, there's mm-hmm. two classic starting places. Uh, mm-hmm. By far the most the standard is base camp, which actually is pretty far up the Oroconais Valley. I mean, it, it's a yep. full day's hike up, which normally the mule trains are schlepping the gear. In this case, you schlepped your own minimalistic gear up. And so <laughs> it started from base camp, but there yep. are FKTs attempt started at what we'll call the trailhead. And yep. so if you go on to the FKT site, it's called Plaza del Mulas to Summit or Orcones Trailhead to Summit. Now, Orcones right. Trailhead is down at the highway. So that truly right. is the trailhead. And that yep. is a massive schlep <laughs> to do that in yeah. one day. It's an, extra, <laughs> it's an extra 25K one way. So 15 and a half miles uphill. Uh, I think it's like, what would it be? I think it's like 5,000 feet net up on that leg. Um and yeah, that's, and that's to me, like, that's, that's just, a, that's, that's just to get to base camp. That's just to get to base camp. Yeah. So that's an right. extra. And that's, to me, that's like the prestigious route. That's like, you know, Killian Jornet had it. I honestly don't know who had it before him, but like the people who I cared about were, you know, Killian Jornet and Carl Agaloff. Like those are the two, I would say, biggest names in this kind of route, like in, in kind of a really big mountain high altitude FKT attempt. And that was the thing that got me the most excited about this was okay these this this is a route that the two guys that i respect most in the world um both of these guys have shot their shot on this route and this is what they were able to do um and that's that's kind of what gets me motivated is okay like this is a really hard challenge let's let's see what we can do let's let's, i'm gonna i have to pause again because we are going to come back to that but before our listeners become confused let's go where you left off on the standard route Okay, uh, we've, yeah, uh, we've yeah. understand that there's two routes. The standard yeah. which most people are going to do who are listening to this is going to start right. from base camp. And as you said, most people are going to, on the guided trip, they're going to do the assault, the expeditionary style, yep. which is to go up, uh, you know, maybe f- not that far, really, maybe a thousand meters. I mean, there's... Mm-hmm. There's a Lido, there's Canada, there's there's three different camps up there. And yep. then from the high camp, they're going to go for their summit push, very much Everest expedition style. But yep. obviously, you didn't do that. I didn't <laughs> do that. I think it's, I don't, I would never do that personally. I'm just a little <laughs> editorial comment here. But Alpine style. <laughs> well, it's alpine style, so there's an ethical, uh, a stylistic aspect, which I can tell you strongly relate to. But sure. you're a coach here, so let's just stay with <laughs> stay with me on this for a second. Okay. I'm going to editorialize. I think as long as you're fit, it's way better to not do that and to start at base camp. I think one day up and back is safer and easier than the siege style tactics because mm-hmm. you're at altitude, you're subject to storms less, you're more rested, you're more hydrated, yeah. you're better fed. This is my editorial comment. What do you think? Yeah, it's really funny that you say that because Scott and I actually talked about this a lot because, you know, every single day we would go up super light. I'd go, you know, I'm sponsored by Ultra Spire. I'd go up with like my little tiny Ultra Spire, like running vest basically with like one layer and like two water bottles in it. And we'd pass these uh, these trains of people with like 50-pound packs on just absolutely slogging up so slowly up these trails. And because that's that's what they have to do. Like 90% of what they do on the mountain is just porting stuff up to these higher camps so that they can sleep there. They port it up to Camp 1. They sleep at Camp 1. They port it up to Camp 2. They sleep at Camp 2. They port it up to Camp 3. They sleep at Camp 3. And, like, you know, this stuff takes a long time. And so we talked a lot about, like, yeah, like, it's, it's a, I think at the very least, it's a way less comfortable and less fun way to do it. 
um, even if you kind of take the safety out of the equation, just because a your hikes up are miserable. You're carrying so much weight, that's so much altitude. You're going so slowly that like you're not even generating body heat. So it just it's just terrible. And then the other thing is is um, you know if you're from sea level and you're sleeping at five thousand meters, fifty six hundred meters, six thousand meters, like you are not sleeping well. So for me, both as an athlete and a coach, I look at that and I'm like, I understand the concept that. I mean, first of all, you're starting with the point that like most of these people, like physically, you wouldn't be able to make a summit push from Moolah. So it would take too long, even if you went super light. But then the other issue is like, man, you have this ass kicker of a day of hauling a 40, 50 pound pack up to, you know, say camp one even. And then you're sleeping up at 5,000 meters. You're not going to recover very well. It's like, you're just kind of digging yourself into a hole, the whole expedition, in, in my opinion, like, I think you're, you'd be way better off, even if you had to do that and get your stuff up high is like, take your stuff up, leave it there, come back down and sleep lower and then go back up with like nothing. If you actually want to sleep up there when you're ready to make your summit bit or something like that. Um, well, well, thank you, Tyler. You, so yes, I, I'm I, very I, much in we, agreement. <laughs> okay. You and I, did, you know, disclosure did not discuss this aspect in advance. <laughs> no, and so, uh, <laughs> and you're a coach and you've, You've been there a lot. So thank you for saying that. Because, you know, before I even got there, I'm thinking, I don't want to sleep up that high. That just wrecks right. you. And then right. when you go there, there's no water. And so you're right. having That's to yep. so, supposedly melt snow for water, which is kind of a right. theoretical undertaking. <laughs> you know, you just pack this giant pot full of grungy icy snow <laughs> and it takes two hours to melt it and again you're up high the wind's blowing like 50 miles an yeah. hour you can't sleep you can't rest you can hardly eat or drink and this is supposedly a good idea yeah yeah i mean you're, we're definitely like not doing a good job of selling commercial aconcagua expeditions right now like, <laughs> i think that if you ask most people after the fact who who go and summit on an expedition like this i'm sure they say it's like an amazing wonderful experience so like i i'm again i've never done an expedition like that um i'm sure it's it's a challenge in its own way and again like people have been doing this for a long time guides have been doing this for a long time so it's like there is some rationale. And, and, and I, again, the big thing is all these people have to get up to that camp, that high camp at, you know, 20,000 feet, at least the night before their summit bid, because that's where they have to start in order to make the summit. I think that's for 90, 95% of people. That's the biggest issue is, okay, we need to get these people up to 20,000 feet to start their climb. How do we logistically do that? Um, and I, yeah, I mean, we could go on and on and on about this, but, but I think uh, there's, there's definitely different approaches. And, you know, I personally love moving quickly through the mountains. I love moving light and fast and covering a lot of ground, covering a lot of vert. And again, I recognize that that's a big privilege, that that's something that I can do because I, you know, have the fitness and the acclimatization to be able to do that. Um, it's something that I'm very grateful for. And, and that's, that's just the style that I prefer to do. Good call, Tyler. A good call. This this is this is good to be discussing this because again, people are going to want to do this. They're probably thinking about doing this. It's one of the seven summits, mm -hmm. and so a few things have come out here so far. One is there is a lot of really high mountains in the Andes, and there's mm -hmm. some of the highest. Number two, number three. I think number three is Macario, isn't it? Number three is Mount Pisces, which is also in Argentina. Oh, gotcha. Um, and, but they're really yeah. close. The the t three tallest are yeah close to each other. They're also kind of similar. They're not like those Ecuadorian volcanoes. You know, these are um, you know some granitic mountains in the Andes, and they're really dry. There's obviously exactly. snow up there, but they're actually they're kind of semi desert. They're next to a Mediterranean yep. climate, and so consider doing something else. But if you're going for the big A. Tyler has explained some of the logistics here, some of the options I've put in my personal editorial comment, which is like you said, someone comes back from those expeditions and if they made the summit, which maybe they did, maybe they didn't, they're happy about it. And they see that, you know, I just marched up from base camp. They say, oh man, you must be superhuman. I say, no, I'm lazy. That's my <laughs> point of view. I just, the past. Though, I, I can't, don't like I don't carrying wanna, heavy packs. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to carry that pack. And you're just, you know, it's one step. Take a breath. 
run a step, take a breath. Yeah. Like, I can't do this. And you totally. get up there, you know, you're eating no food. It's just yeah. crappy. If I go up from base camp and back down, I mean, I literally did have a glass of wine. When I got back on that same day. It's like, <laughs> this is kind of, I'm, I'm just lightweight. I'm just a wuss is really what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. I, yeah. I, I think it's, it's like, choose your pick your poison, right? It's like, okay, are you someone who would rather like haul a big heavy pack for a short distance or would you rather go for a lot of for a lot of time, but be able to go lighter? I'm always going to go on that, that second option. Like I think my hardest days on the whole expedition were like the days that we had to carry really heavy stuff up to base camp. I was like totally worked after that. Cause like, I never trained like that. You know, I'm a, I'm a small guy. I'm like, I do a lot of running. I do a lot of like super light mountain stuff. So it's like, I just, I never trained with a 50, 60 pound pack on ever. And so I, I was just so sore after that. I need like three days to recover. <laughs> well, let's, let's get into acclimatization now. Okay. Because obviously, you know what you're doing here. So did you acclimate prior to going on the trip or did you do all your acclimatization yeah. after you got there? Yeah, so I, I'm very lucky in that I my kind of two home bases now are Flagstaff, Arizona and Quito, Ecuador, both of which are at altitude. So Flag's like 7,000 feet, Quito's like 9,000 feet. So I was in Quito... I, I kind of just like kept bumping things up. I basically spent, uh, let's see, November and half of December in Quito at 9,000 feet. And at the end of that trip, I spent about a week in Cotopaxi National Park. So I was sleeping at maybe 12,000 feet. And I think I climbed Cotopaxi like five times in four days or something like that. Um, so like I was up going, getting up almost to 20,000 feet a bunch of times and just feeling really good there. And then we went, over to the Chilean side, like I mentioned before, of the Atacama. And so that camp is like about the same, like maybe 12.5, 12.8, something like that. And so that was kind of our low point. But that area, I absolutely love it. It's so amazing because you have all these 20,000 meter mountains around you. And it's like you, you were just describing. A lot of them are very similar climate to Aconcagua, where you have really dry mountains in the summertime. So they're very high, but really easy to move quickly for the most part, um, because they're, they're non-glaciated peaks for the most part. They're, they're very easily hikeable. They're not super technical, technical. You can run a lot. Um, so I spent, I think almost a month on that side before I went into Aconcagua National Park. And so, you know, I, I literally never went below whatever that was, 12, eight, I think. And I probably was going up over, over 6,000 meters, over 20,000 feet, like three or four times a week. Um, just hitting different summits. Uh, like I mentioned before, I, I went up Ojos and got within like 20 meters of the summit and turned back. But, you know, that's a 22,600 foot mountain or something like that. So I felt like by the time we went into Aconcagua National Park on January 11th, I was like, I felt like I could have done it that next day. Like I was so ready. And it was really more, we gave ourselves uh, three weeks in the park because we really wanted a, to make sure that we could recon the route really well and knew all the logistics for FKT day and also just gave ourselves the opportunity to have a good weather window because that's that's the big thing. Um, I think when you're tackling a, a record on a big mountain like this is you have to have the right conditions. And that actually ended up kind of being the crux of our whole expedition was like, we had like two days of really good weather right when we got there. And that's, that's when I did the first summit. I, I summited once and got the short FKT. And then we had, I think, like nine days in a row where the wind was between 60 and 110 miles an hour. Um, El Viento, El Viento Blanco. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was awful. And so we were just like freezing our, you know, what's off up at, up at base camp and like just kind of training on the mountain. But we knew like there's no way that we're going to make a summit bid during this crazy wind. So we were just waiting and waiting and waiting. And we actually we actually had to change our flights to give ourselves like an extra 48 hours because we could finally see a window coming on, on the forecast, a weather window. And we're like, Oh, that's the day. Like that has got to be the day. And it worked out just really perfectly. And that we got that day and it was like in the kind of like three weeks around it, it was one of like, 
two days basically that probably would have worked like January, I think is usually really good weather, but this, this particular stretch of like two or three weeks was just kind of brutal up there. So it ended up being totally worth it, but Oh my gosh, it was, it was a definitely a lesson in patience. Wow. That's an excellent information. So anyone going down there should consider that you can take just as we as if you read the directions, if you read the regulations, and if you do everything you say, your pack's going to weigh 50 pounds, or you could read the weather report. And uh, I think it's safer send to do it. the latter. Yeah, send <laughs> yeah. it. There you go. And you, yeah. We're borrowing the climber's term here and just send it. And in my personal opinion, you know, don't sue me if something goes wrong if you do this. <laughs> Light and fast is safer. If no, you're agree. smart yep. and if you're experienced. Now, if you're a dummy, this is not the case. <laughs> so you really have to be willing to quit. So I, yep. I, I'm a, an apostle of the fast and light equals safe. But that means if something comes up, if the weather comes in, I quit. I don't totally. press on. I just say, 100%. oh, I'm going home. I'm coming back the next day, the next week. And that's what you did. Because El Viento Blanco, the white wind is just epic up there. It's not totally. so much exactly the cold or the snow, but if that wind comes up, it's hard to stand up. And people die. Is, yeah. Just, just yeah. to be clear, people die every year on Aconcagua. Yeah, true. Yeah, there was already one death, like actually right before we got there. Um, a lot of people have altitude problems um, and like don't say anything about it or people fall like just because they are tired or the wind is really high or they just take a bad step. So yeah, people die in big mountains. And I think that was like our number one goal was like, all right, let's not die. Let's not have anyone get really seriously injured. And like, I had actually had a pretty scary fall um, on Ojos a couple of weeks earlier. So I I think my uh, like risk tolerance was probably even a little bit lower than usual. And that was one of the things that like, when you're saying, you know, going really light and quick, I think that you have to have that sense of, uh, when is, when am I turning back? Like you have to have that sense really, really dialed. And I think mine, you know, people, when you, you know, it's like you were just saying, when you look at my profile in FKT, you see all these marks, but it's like, what you don't see is for those 27 FKTs, there's probably a hundred attempts where I turned around. Um, because I just didn't feel like that was the right day. Either the weather was bad. The conditions of the mountain were just bad. I had a gear problem. My body didn't feel right. So, you have to, that, that's kind of like the silent graveyard of, of, okay, there's, yeah, there's some success here, but there's also a ton of trying and failing. And I think for me, it's about, okay, how do I adjust my risk tolerance to a point where I feel like I know I will make the right decision if it's time to turn back. But at the same time, I also know that I'm not going to just turn back because I'm tired or uh, because it's hard but because it's a safety issue, you know, and I think that's a really, really fine line between when is it a safety issue and when is it a comfort issue or a tiredness issue? That's really hard to figure out. And I think you kind of have to screw it up a few times before you can really have a sense of it going forward. I love this conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Because this is it. I mean, this mm-hmm. is this is behind the curtain. This is how mm-hmm. the the top people really do think about things. It's not cut and dried. Um, maybe from the outside looking in, you say, "Oh yeah, these guys totally got it together." Not really. We're always <laughs> processing, aren't we? We're always trying to figure really? it out. We're always trying to tune it up. And I loved what you said about the silent graveyard. Mm-hmm. And out of your twenty-seven FKTs, which are like pretty serious. <laughs> this isn't the Mesa trail in Boulder. You said yeah. you had a hundred where you turned around and I, uh, I, maybe I appreciate even more than that. Yeah. I mean, so like that, that day on Ojos, I mean, so Ojos again, second tallest mountain in the Americas. I was there acclimatizing, like this was less than three weeks before the Aconcagua FKT or, or at least before we got into the park, I was there. It was like one of the last big things I was going to do. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can get the short FKT. I already had the long FKT, um, from last year and I wanted to get the short FKT and I went up, the snow conditions were not great. Um, I was literally like, I could throw a rock at the summit of this mountain. I was five minutes away from it at most. I'd come up, whatever that is, like 2000 vertical meters. There's 30 vertical meters to go. And the very last piece of Ojos is the most technical. There's a really steep snow gully. And then there's a little rock, uh, that you kind of climb up onto the summit. 
And I was in this snow gully and it was really icy. And I had just a very simple hiking crampon, you know, with like little tiny one centimeter teeth. And I was climbing this thing and I just had a really bad feeling about it. I didn't like the way that my crampons were ripping the ice. And I tried to down climb. I tried to traverse a little bit and I just slipped. I lost traction and I fell like, I don't know, I think probably like 60 or 80 feet on this wow. top ice field. Wow. Yeah, it was really scary. And I, I got really lucky in that I was stopped by some some rocks that were in the middle of the slope, but that could have been a fatal fall though. There was like 600 feet of ice below me, um, to the bottom of the caldera basically. So that was like, you know, like I, I, and I was part of the reason for that, um, that I found myself in that predicament was because I was thinking about this record. I was under record pace. I was like, Oh, I'm not, I don't want to turn back because like I have whatever 30 minutes of margin to go five minutes. Like it's totally fine. So again, this is an example of like, I think of myself as someone who has a decent amount of experience in the mountains, but like I still screw up and it, that was like a really serious screw up that almost cost me my life. Like that, those kind of things still happen. And, you know, there's no, I wouldn't say there's any stories that are quite as serious as that one in my like repertoire of like failed FKT attempts, but there are, there are definitely dozens and dozens of times where I've been very, very close to something um, like the top of a mountain or the, the, you know, finishing out a route and just said, okay, you know, nope, I'm going to turn back. Like, it doesn't matter if I'm one minute away or one hour away. Like it, there's, you just need to know when that time is. And I think that when you look at the the athletes in the mountains who have been successful and who are still alive, like <laughs> late in their career, those are the guys who have it the most dialed are, are the guys who have that, that balance between uh, knowing when to push and knowing when to turn back. And I think, most of us are so heavily motivated by our, our own internal motivation that we always err on the side of caution that like, we're never going to beat ourselves up basically for saying, Oh, you know what? Like that really dangerous situation. I probably could have gotten away with that. Like most of us are like, eh, if there's like even an inkling of doubt, it's like, all right, let's head down. Um, and like this literally happened to me yesterday. Yesterday I was on Mount Washington here in Massachusetts or in, in New Hampshire. Um, and it was similar. It was, I mean, whatever. I, I was well, a, quick, a quick pause here. So yeah. Mount Washington is not the highest mountain in the East Coast in the Appalachians. That's actually Mount Mitchell down in North Carolina. But Mount Washington is the highest in New England. And yep. it is officially the third windiest spot in the world. <laughs> yeah. I had a perfect day, though. It was it was beautiful. That's why I, went, yeah, I looked at the forecast because I'm only here in New England for like a week. And I saw, oh, there's like this perfect weather window on Tuesday morning on Mount Washington. Um, and so I went up and I was like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'm still kind of recovering from the Aconcagua thing. I'm just going to go have a nice fun romp up, up the trail. And it was similar, similar to the Ojo's experience. I got up, I was going up Huntington's ravine and I got a little bit of the way up and I just like had a bad feeling. I was like, I don't feel great about the snow. I don't feel great about my crampons. I don't feel great about the avalanche risk here. And like, just headed back. Like, I, you know, it, it happens all the time, all the time. So I think people, again, who see, people doing crazy stuff in the mountains um, or things they see as crazy, whether it's, you know, like Alex Hall free soloing or, you know, the guys in Meru or whatever, like Nims on 14 peaks, like everyone who's doing stuff like this is we see the stuff that goes well, but what we don't see is the 10 times volume of stuff that doesn't go that, that is turned back on or has failed for whatever reason. Um, and that's really the true story is like, okay, for every 10, really big, scary things that you attempt, like one of them is going to really go well and everything's going to go perfectly. And, and that's the one that's going to have the story. So I think it's really, really important to recognize that of, of how much failure goes into every success. Wow, man, this is, this, this is a great podcast. I mean, everything you're saying is like a quote. Uh, we have to make little posters of your quotes here, Tyler. Except I think we're going to take Nims Perjol out of that list. I think- okay. uh, I mean, anyway, the reference here is to a film that uh, what what's the name of that film? It's, it's called like, Fourteen Peaks. It's a it's a documentary on Netflix right now. Yeah, fourteen is that what it's called? Fourteen yeah, Peaks. Yeah, Fourteen Peaks. The Possible Project. That's right. The Possible Project. And yep. whoa, dang. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah that's pretty we, wild. We to, yeah, that's pretty wild. I think we have to take him out of that equation. What he got done? Yeah, he has a pretty high risk tolerance. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> right. Other than that, 
uh, a yep. notable exception, then and very well, very well taken. Good point yep. there. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I just got in uh, the Mount Washington Road Race yesterday. Oh, so awesome! I always wanted to do that. Well, if you're around on June 18th, maybe I'll see you there. 18th. All right, we'll see. Okay. Well, back to uh, the big A. Dang. Yeah. This is good stuff. This is, I mean, how much, I want to go back and talk about equipment just for a second. I hopefully am not boring anyone. I'm extremely excited about this. When we went down there, they had numerous rules and regulations, like you said, which you can understand because there's all sorts of, well, the, the whole range from people who as John Krakauer documented on Mount Everest, who've got mm-hmm. the money to sign up for a trip and not the experience or the skill to people yep. like you who are world-class and the regulations are the same for everybody. And they're yeah. to protect the weaker. And I, you know, I, I'm guessing I'm going to say this on air. I ignored my, many of them just <laughs> didn't do it. So how did this work for you? For example, at the time they had a regulation that you had to wear plastic double boots which oh. I just I just wasn't going to do that. I think they're actually yep. kind of cold. To me, a flexible shoe where you're flexing your foot keeps me warm, while a yep. stiff boot doesn't. But yep. that's my personal theory. So how did you work these regulations? Well, that's one that I actually hadn't even heard of, that, that, that you had to wear a specific type of boot. No one, certainly no one ever said that to me. Um, full disclosure, I'm sponsored by Hoka, and I ended up basically... Uh, I'm trying to think if I even wore a hiking boot. I mostly wore trail shoes, honestly. Um, I wore on at, on FKT day itself. I wore a very light, the Evo speed goat, like a racing trail shoe from the start to, uh, not even to Mulas. It was above that. It was all the way up to Nido de Condres, which is at like 18,000 feet. So I wore like a super light trail shoe all the way to 18,000 feet. And then at that point I changed into a Gore-Tex trail shoe which is waterproof just for the parts that had snow. But honestly, like I could have worn that trail shoe all the way to the summit. Like we just, again, when you talk, when you can coordinate the weather day, um, we had a really good day. It wasn't that cold, but I mean, I was still passing people in like full Everest down suits and double plastic boots on the way up. And just thinking like, man, that doesn't seem super necessary today. Like I understand again, like what the, the ideas behind that, especially if you're going really slowly, but like you, I think some of those, some sometimes those really heavy boots can actually keep your feet colder just because you can't move them at all in there. Um, there's no blood flow to, to the toes and right. stuff. So for what, me, what you, how about crampons and ice axe then? For, I didn't bring an ice axe. I didn't even bring an ice axe on the trip. Um, I mean, Aconcagua had very little snow on it when I was, when I was uh, up there on, on FKT day. I mean, there's way more snow outside my parents' house in Massachusetts right now than there was even on the snowiest parts of Aconcagua. So that was, uh, that was not an issue. I, I, I never, never considered bringing an ice axe. I did bring poles like trekking poles, um, and use those all the way up, but I never used an ice axe. Um, I did see groups with ice axes, but I had never saw anyone using one. Honestly, I only saw people using trekking poles, uh, in terms of crampons. So that's an interesting part of the story. Um, so like I said, I had that accident on Ohos about a couple of weeks earlier, and I really felt like if I had had a beefier crampon, that that would not have happened, um, that I would have felt a lot more comfortable going up that ice slope with a longer toothed crampon and maybe a little bit sharper. So that was really my goal on, on Aconcagua. The first time that I went up to the summit um, and got the short FKT, I went with the, those same really minimalist hiking crampons, and I felt like on the descent there were pieces where I would have felt more comfortable with a longer crampon. And that's part of why I wanted to do that ascent was just to figure out exactly what gear I wanted to use on, on the big FKT day. And so when I, yeah, when I, I ran in in the light trail shoes up to about 18,000 feet and then swapped into the Gore-Tex ones and put a, a, basically a semi-technical crampon. Let's pause just for a second. I mean, I, you, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus here, but we do want to get good information, provide information to our listeners. So okay. the one that broke on Ojo, yeah. was it like a Cthulhu aluminum or what was it? It wasn't. So it didn't, the one on the Ojo didn't break. It just failed. Like like the traction just failed. Like I literally, the, the teeth were not like this, the slope is too steep and too hard for the teeth to grip and provide enough traction. So it must've um, been an aluminum, not a steel point then. Yeah. It was like, 
it was like a $30, like, like one of these ones that's basically like little tiny teeth with a rubber band on it, basically that you, you uh, just like, it doesn't even have a clip. You just like rubber band it onto your shoes. You know, it's almost like a micro spike. It it wasn't Uh, the Catula micro spike though. It wasn't Catula. I believe the brand is called Unigear. And honestly, like I've used them like on all of my, snowy fkt like i use it on cotopaxi a whole bunch of times with no problems like it was only because of the particular snow conditions and the fact that the snow was hard and it was it was a little bit steeper than um than i'd been on before with those type of crampons that was what uh caused that issue on ohos um i see so a then, quick pause so yep. the uni gear was the factory that made Catulas. And oh, they knocked off. Yeah, so it's terrible. So you, you, karma caught up with you on this one, Tyler. So, <laughs> because uh, the factory knocked off the brand, which is really bad, bad ethics. They uh, didn't sure have is. a patent on it, so they started. The manufacturers started copying what they were making for Catula. Interesting. So, yeah, that was kind of a funky situation. Uh, so what? What would you recommend? A strap on? So, yeah, I would recommend it really depends on, on the conditions. Like for Ojos, I am going to go back like next week and I'll definitely use a slightly longer toothed crampon, um, probably something that's steel versus aluminum and just something that gives you a little bit more dig into, into something that's steeper and harder. Cause that's, that, that was really the problem there was just, it, it just wasn't enough traction. It wasn't giving enough dig into the, into the ice. Um, that, that was what caused me to lose traction there. Now, coincidentally, I had a, another crampon problem on Aconcagua, which was on long FKT day. I used this one. I think it was a Catula. I will throw a Catula under the bus. Um, I used a semi-technical crampon from Catula, still pretty light, but more teeth, longer teeth, has front points, um, and you can still strap it onto your running shoe. And I used that and... This time the problem was, um, as I'm sure you know, when you have when you cramp on, you essentially have like the front plate and the back plate, and you have the little um, the little band that, next that flex yeah. band that flex band. Yeah, and basically what happened was there there was like a screw that held that um, that little rectangular beam piece that connects the two halves together. Um, that screw fell out. Um, and it fell out twice. It fell out once, like right after I put them on and took like 10 steps. And I was like, oh, that's probably not great. But I was able to get it back in. And then it stuck in for a while, but it fell apart again at like 6,600 meters, like 22,000 feet. Um, and so I'm up like on the side of the mountain at 22,000 feet, like trying to like thread some paracord that I bring for emergencies through my crampons, like basically tying it onto my shoe, which actually worked fine. Like it, it got me up the mountain and got me to the summit and got me back down safely. But, um, that was, uh, pretty much what cost me the round trip record. I I think I lost at least an hour on the way up just dealing with this problem basically of, of trying to find the screw and then trying to basically MacGyver my cramp on back onto my foot so that I wouldn't slide down the mountain. Um, and yeah, it's frustrating because it's like, a gear problem. It's like, you know, having a mechanical and a bike race or something, but at the end of the day, it's like, it is what it is. And I, I still felt good about the decision to bring a heavier cramp on. It's just, I think, you know, for future expeditions, like I, <laughs> a, just like test, like do harder testing with my gear and also like having better gear, having like a more, right. and that might've been, there, there was, could be a little bad luck there too. I mean, luck is a, yeah. is a huge factor in anything we do. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, well, staying with this gear just for a second, again, for okay. listeners who might want to go down and do this, uh, Peter and I were down there, I think it was over 10 years ago, and I, I had never been anywhere near the place. I looked into it, and I thought, no, no, I, ice axe just isn't a thing. We didn't bring no. an ice axe either, even though it was required at the time. Maybe they've done away with those regulations, such as the plastic boots. We didn't do that either. We definitely used Gore-Tex shoes uh, mm-hmm. above base camp. A quick personal essay here. I think Gore-Tex is stupid for shoes because it basically just keeps moisture in. I mean, if you go through a creek, your feet are going to be soaked. It's going to come in the top. And mm-hmm. But the Gore-Tex will make it slower to dry out. But for cold snow, Gore-Tex kills it. It's what you want. Yep. Like if you want to do Rainier, Hood, Adams, Akakagwa, things like that, Gore-Tex gives you all significantly more warmth 
quick editorial comment there. And oh, then I love the microspikes, but no way I was going to use microspikes on that. And so we used <laughs> a strap-on, crampon. And then as you yep. said, at the time, we were some of the few people up there with trekking poles. At that time, trekking poles were not a thing, but now trekking poles are very well accepted. And I think trekking poles are key just because you're slogging. I mean, no one yep. really doing that much running going uphill and we were i don't know but we weren't yeah. uh but with their trekking poles are key in the wind and there's it's mm -hmm. always gonna be windy and so when the poles means you can drive forward and drive upward as opposed to trying to balance and totally. so i find trekking poles on high mountains to be extremely helpful yeah yeah, and I, th I think the other big thing with trekking poles on Aconcagua, at least, is that uh, a lot of the time, some of the trail can be a little bit loose. It's it, it's almost like going up scree sometimes. Um, it's like sandy uh, where there's where there's not as much snow. There, the trekking poles can be super helpful because otherwise, you like take a step up and you slide back three quarters of a step. If you have the trekking poles in there to push off with as well, you can you can do a lot better. So I I found the trekking poles to be really really valuable. Good call. Let's dive backwards in time okay. because the history in the big A is incredible, right? This people have had a go at this and these are some of the top people. And these are people who didn't necessarily have trekking poles. Definitely <laughs> they, not. This is <laughs> definitely not. And I've got a name, uh, a name here who hopefully people have heard of, but if not, the name is Bruno Bernard. He's from Italy, the Aosta region, and he is the person who set that epic, epic FKT on the Matterhorn that Killian Jarnett later broke, paying homage to Bruno in doing so. Bruno was one of the best. He was absolutely the best mountain runner of his generation, uh, of his time. And he went down there with a few Italian friends, and they went and lived at that a wooden weird refugio, which I think is closed now, isn't it? Yeah, closed it is. now. It's closed. Yep. And they they sat there for a few weeks, acclimated. And this is back, this is 22 years ago. This is the year mm -hmm. 2000. And they went from base camp to something back in four hours, 52 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, no one's beat that 22 nope. years later. Nope. Yeah, that one, that one's legit. It's, um, you need to be a really good climber and a really good descender. I think that's, that's the thing that that makes that mark really interesting because like the ascent record, which I now have from Place de Moulas is, uh, three, basically three and a half hours, um, which means you have to come all the way down the mountain in an hour and 20 minutes ish, like 80 minutes down. And that's really hard. Uh, it's, a, it's like, uh, you know, it's 10,000 feet uh, of vert over, I don't know, like six or seven miles. And some of it is really tricky. It can often be really crowded on the mountain on good days. So it can be really hard to move quickly on some of the kind of pinch points. Um, so that like a lot, like, like when we were talking about like everything having to come together perfectly for those things, like that's one of those marks where I think you have to have everything come together perfectly because you have to be really fit, really well acclimated. You have to have a really good ascent. And then you also have to be able to come down really quick, like to be able to do both of those in the same day, I think is really hard because a lot of the time, if you get up there in a good time, you have to go up early enough that you beat all the other climbers through kind of the, the tight squeeze sections but then you're almost by definition going to hit them on the way back down. Um, and then you're going to lose a ton of time on your descent. So when I went and did the short ascent FKT, that was my issue was coming down. I, it took me like an hour to get down the first 500 vertical meters just because it was so crowded. Um, and the trails really narrow and exposed uh, in, in that top 500 meters. So it just took forever for me to get down through that part. Um, and I, I, you know, obviously at that point, it's like, okay, I'm not going to get down in 20 minutes. So it doesn't matter. And I kind of took my time, but that that's just like logistically a very tricky thing to accomplish to get all those things to line up. Right. Well, everything's tricky to accomplish. So <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, your three hours, and 32 minutes going up is really tricky to accomplish. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 332, like you said, this is 9,000 vert, thousand feet of yeah. vert. Um, yeah, in three hours, 32 minutes. And this is going up to, you know, basically 23,000 feet. So mm -hmm. that was getting it done. And like you said, there's that little rib, there's that little ridge at the top after you cross the 
the Canaleta, yeah. they got they got congested. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, really congested. Same thing on on long FKT day. On long FKT day, I hit it on the way up. Well, I guess I hit it on both, but um, I hit it more on the way up just because I was on that part of the mountain a little bit later in the day. Um, and it was, it was a similar issue of just like most people were extremely kind and generous and supportive and got out of the way, but it's also, you know, some of those people are just really worked. Like it's your, at, those guys are going to go in for eight, nine, 10 hours, some of them. And, you know, maybe they even have headphones in or something, but it's, uh, it's, it's hard when you're up there to do anything. And if you have some little gringo coming up behind you saying, Hey, on your left, like <laughs> the last thing you want to do is like take a step onto some like really exposed rock and let this person pass. So I totally get it. And and I appreciate everyone on the mountain for kind of letting me do my thing and, and trying not to get in anyone else's way. Excellent attitude. Because like you said, they're struggling. They're mad. Oh, yeah. They're on the, they're on the rivet. And yep. so you're, you're working really hard, but you're probably not. And so to stay out of their way is definitely the way to do it. Going for an FKT gives you zero privileges, folks. Just keep in mind, courtesy <laughs> still is the number one plan. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So you mentioned the short and the long FKT day. That means on the 15th of, uh, of uh, where are we here? You, um, yeah, on 15th, yeah, 15th of January, you did that uh, ascent from the base camp in that you know, three and a half hours, which is just amazing. But then nine days later, you backed it down to the trailhead mm -hmm. and started down at the trailhead, uh, which is, as we discussed a few minutes ago, is extremely long. It's 5,000 feet and was it like 15 miles or so yeah. just to get to base camp. And then you started up a pace from right there nine yep. days later, and you got that FKT ascent also this yep. time battering Carl Egloff, who yep. has major stature. He was uh, voted <laughs> our FKT of the year number one for his Denali ascent in 2019. And of course he broke Killian's time on Kilimanjaro. He broke Killian's time on Aconcagua. He kind of was yep. following Killian around the world. Not intentionally. Yeah. We had many podcasts with Carl. He wasn't he wasn't going after Killian, just to be clear. No. But just coincidentally, this is what he liked to do. Well, and, and so, I I'd also I don't think it is a coincidence. Like, no, he's not going after Killian personally, but it's the same reason that I went I mean, a big part of the reason I went to Aconcagua is like that's where the best guys go. Like that's where the most competitive mark is right now. And like that motivates us as, as high level athletes is competing against the best in the world, whether it's, you know, if you're a, you know, football player, you want to play in the Super Bowl, And if you're a mountain runner, you want to go after the most competitive FKTs out there and the most high profile routes. And so, you know, I think Killian was the best of, of his generation. I mean, one could argue he still is the best of this generation. And I think Carl is proving himself to be better than Killian on really big high altitude mountains. I think Killian still gets him in, like a traditional trail race, like a UTMB or even a Sierra Zanel shorter thing. But I think Carl is proving himself as, as the best in the world on, on these really big mountains. And, you know, he wants to go out there and, and show the world that he wants to say, Hey, like Killian was the best. Now it's my turn. Um, and I think that's why you see him on, on all these same routes, breaking Killian's record, whether it's Kilimanjaro or Denali or, or, you know, soon he's going to head to Everest and go for that one too. It's like, he's trying to cement his own legacy. Good, good description, right? This is where the big guys go. That's where you want to go right. too. I like it. Yeah. And we also note that um, Killian is a masterful descender. So when you look oh, at yeah. the two, when you, you compare these two, Carl tends to out-hike him to the top, and then yeah. Killian tends to outrun him to the bottom. And so yeah. when Carl's coming second, he knows he's got to really run well. Yeah. And I think, like, I'm I'm even more in that category, like, because Carl comes from a mountaineering background. Like I come from a road running background. Like I think I'm similar to Carl. Like, like the analogy continues. I think I'm a, I, I can out climb Carl sometimes, but then he's going to kick my ass on any technical descent. So that was why on the round trip, Mark, I knew I've got to take an hour or so off his ascent time or else I'm not going to be able to get the round trip time because he, his time from the summit back down to base camp on that really steep technical piece is just unbelievable. And I knew that I couldn't come close to that. So I knew that I had to give myself a big buffer. So when I 
had those crampon issues that I mentioned before on the way up, I, I kind of got to the summit and I could see, okay, I'm only 20 minutes ahead of his time. Like I thought I was going to be 60 to 90 minutes ahead. And suddenly that buffer is really small. And I knew it was going to be really, really hard to get the round trip time as well. Um, but it's also like, that's the thing that's hardest for me as someone who's new to trail running and mountain running is the descending. Like I'm, I'm way better at descending than I was two years ago. Like I trained a lot with Jim Walmsley and Flagstaff and he take me on some gnarly stuff and just absolutely kick my butt. But I, I've come a long way in those two years, but I've still got a long way to go. I mean, Carl's literally been doing this kind of stuff since he was a child and I've been doing it for a couple of years. So I, I've got a long way to go on, on those descending portions but i like to think i have a pretty good engine going uphill <laughs> well I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't think anyone would doubt that last comment would they Tyler? <laughs> i mean you went to the top of Aconcago from the trailhead 20 minutes faster than carl egloff so yeah that's a pretty good engine <laughs> thanks and I, and I will note that like you said you've only been doing it for two years you come from a road running background I think developing the, the technical capability to descend is a little easier than developing the big cardiovascular endurance. So it's I think, true, what, yeah. yeah, I think what you the gap you have to bridge is a little easier than what you already have established. Yeah, and of course, you got to do those quad exercises, right? <laughs> yeah, no, the quads are good. The the the, the mus- muscularly, I feel fine. It's more just like I am still too timid. I think is the thing. Mm-hmm. I. I Still, uh, I got to got to be able to fully send it downhill. Which uh, every once in a while, I, I really let myself go, but I'm I'm just a little bit too timid. Still, I don't trust myself. I don't trust my footing. Well, I think that's okay because as we've discussed in this podcast before, you can of course going for an FKT is a little different, but for the average person, you know, not pointing it down, you're going to give up a minute or two. But then if you make like a beaver into some rocks, you know, you're going to give up month or two so you know it's <laughs> yep. a minute or two here versus a month or two in the hospital so yeah. <laughs> i think you know yeah right being judicious on the descent has makes sense totally well as we always do tyler i'm gonna ask what's next gosh this again listeners definitely go on the website type in tyler andrews see what he's done this is your bucket list <laughs> for south america and you get some Seriously. nice history on um Aconcagua here. Oh, by the way, thank you for, as a regional editor, thank you for keeping South America updated and the roots and FKTs and Aconcagua updated. Um, the history from going from the trailhead, the Raconis trailhead, that goes back to the Uber, the Uber brothers. Interesting enough, mm-hmm. these guys were famous Yosemite climbers, and I oh. think they had the FKT on that. I didn't um, know that. Kind of, I know it's sort of shocking that that's what they did, but they were guiding. And so a lot of the early FKTs in Aconcagua were from the guides who worked up there. Yep. And then uh, my friend Chris Rivoli went after it twice. So he tried it from the trailhead twice and came up a little bit short twice. So like you said, mm. uh, failure the unknown failures are some of the best stories out there. Totally. Yep. So what's next? For you, Tyler, you said you're going back. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I I was originally going to head back to Quito and kind of do a, a actually like a road marathon build. I'd like to try and get one more Olympic trials qualifier, so I was going to go for that this spring, and that is still the plan for the spring. But I had a good no, talk wait, wait, hold on, hold on, wait, oh. Tyler, you're going for a trials qualifier at altitude? Did I just hear that? No, 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 like- just the training block. I'll go. I'll oh. race at sea level. I haven't oh. decided what race I'm going to do, but it's probably something in May of uh, 2022 um and so that's i think it'll just be a really nice change of stimulus i've been doing so much like just vert really slow high altitude stuff and i think getting a little bit of speed back in my legs will be a nice change of pace literally (laughs) um and then that'll lead well into a a build up into leadville 100 in august um so that's that's been kind of on my on my list for a while as as something that's i think that race is it really caters to my skill set very well. And uh, I had a pretty disappointing run last year there. So definitely going there for a little bit of redemption uh, in August. But the very short term, yeah, I'm actually going to go back to the Chilean Atacama and try and go finish out that Ojos mark that I started um, a couple weeks ago and try and try and get that short FKT. And then there's actually one other route that I'm really interested in, which is 
there's a big mountain called uh, Nevado Tres Cruces, which is the three crosses. Um, there's, it's a, basically a tri-peak, um, big, huge, massive. Uh, two of the, the, all three peaks are over 20,000 feet, 6,000 meters. I think one is like 6730, one is like 6650, and the other is like 6100. And no one has ever done a complete traverse of the mountain in one push. So that's uh, if we get a good window and I'm feeling good, uh, that's a, a big goal for the next few weeks as well. So try and do a, a first ascent, first send of that that whole ridge line, get them all wow. three in one day. Well, I'm almost I'm, I'm stunned that I asked what you're doing next. Uh, again, you're keeping this <laughs> going, aren't you? You're going going for Olympic trials qualifier and a road marathon, Leadville Trail 100. There's going to be some people on Leadville this year, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. Different people who haven't done it in a while. And then going back for the, some of the more high altitude stuff, Leadville actually is a good choice for you because it's an odd course. It has all this flat, right. runnable stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And it has these steep climbs, which you're good at. And the whole thing, yeah. I mean, it starts at 10,000 feet. So that's a good choice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. No, I'm excited. I think it's it's a race that, I mean, I, I prepped for it really well last year. I got, uh, I was actually recovering from COVID right before the race. So just like really bad timing of that. Um, again, it's kind of one of those like, you know, you have all these failures that lead to your successes. And that, that was definitely one of them. Like it motivated me a lot to get back after it this year. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting race of, of just, like you said, there's so much really runnable stuff on that. I mean, pretty much the whole course is runnable. Like there's really nothing you have to hike on that course at the elite level. Um, you can run every single step of it. Um, it's not technical at all. Uh, the climbs are not that bad. They're not that high. They're not that steep. So I, I think it's, it's a course that really suits my skill set really well. And, um, I'm, I'm excited to go, go after it, go after the win in the course record. We are going to hear from you again. I can tell Tyler. <laughs> I think so. Hopefully I will enjoy our conversations. <laughs> very much so. Very much so. And thank you again for being a regional editor as a volunteer. You're really helping people oh, understand what's going on in South America. So thank you for doing that. And listeners, if you enjoyed this, rank us, rate us, uh, give us some stars, five stars helps. It helps people find the podcast and then forward this podcast if you enjoyed listening to it. Again, we want more people to hear about what we're doing here, more people to hear about what Tyler's doing. And again, if you want to take part in his coaching, uh, this guy knows a lot. It's uh, <laughs> www chasky.run and you can find that in the written show notes as well as his other social media feeds thanks very much tyler i appreciate it thank you thanks everyone for listening it's been a lot of fun i love these